This parable is set within the context of seven parables all about the kingdom, all about its value, its glory, its unique nature. In Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Let me just pray briefly for us. Father, would you attend the preaching of your word? Would you grant your spirit to help us understand, apply, and then live in light of this truth that you would be honored and that our joy would be founded in that. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have this parable. It's one little verse set in seven parables, all about the unique nature of the kingdom. And what Jesus is teaching us here is the value of the kingdom. That's the main point. And I want to remind you of the value of the kingdom. That Daniel's going to speak about why we embrace these costs to see the kingdom advance. And the value of the kingdom is such that first we find that this kingdom is hidden, right? You take a treasure and you hide it in a field. Now, of course, this would make sense to a first century audience, right? I mean, it's the only safe place for it. They had no banks. It was a war-ravaged area. I mean, troops and people, you would never have a treasure out in the open, open to thievery. And so the old rabbinical saying would be the only safe repository of treasure is in the ground. But I think what Jesus is teaching us here is that this kingdom of heaven being buried means that it's hidden. It's not immediately discernible. It's not easily discoverable by people. That you can't just discern this gospel and say, oh yeah, the gospel's of great value. You can't do that. I, I preach the gospel to many people, and they're like, yeah, that's nice. And they don't see the value of it, and yet when we explain it to you, you're going to be in awe of it. So in other words, God has to reveal man's power, ingenuity, wisdom, prowess. It cannot uncover the glory of this gospel apart from God opening your eyes. This is what makes it so valuable. You cannot do it. God has to open your eyes to it. And Jesus has already said this in Matthew 13, chapter 13, verse 11. He says, to you, the secrets of the knowledge of the kingdom have been made known, but not to them. There's some that don't have their eyes open. Aren't we humbled by that? I mean, aren't we aware of, wow, I would have never seen the value. I had heard the gospel before, and it meant very little to me. I had a cognitive appreciation of it, but I didn't see its absolute glory, nor you. And so the first thing we find here is that this treasure is hidden, and that makes it valuable because it has to be exposed to you. Nobody here that claims Christ can say, I found him. You'd have to say, he led me to him. He drew me to him. But then secondly, we see about this kingdom is that it's a present reality. You know, we think of the kingdom of heaven as that which is what we're going to enjoy with God. No more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more mourning. Those are true. Those are a future, the the full consummation of the kingdom where we're with God and with each other, and we're enjoying this. That's a reality that we will see. But there's more going on. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is. There's a present reality. There's a present enjoyment. There's a present value to it that is ours to enjoy. I mean, we know that Jesus preached this kingdom, right? In in Mark 1.15, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, Jesus is saying, no, I'm bringing a kingdom. And you can come in through repentance and faith. You can join in this kingdom through repentance and faith. And then what Jesus did is he demonstrated its power, right? By casting out demons and by healing the sick and raising the dead. 
I mean, that's what the scripture says. Jesus said himself, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know the kingdom has come to you. So Jesus wasn't just announcing it. He was demonstrating it. And now he's inviting people into it, that the value of the kingdom can be enjoyed in this life. We don't have to wait. We will enjoy it in full measure then. We can enjoy it in partial measure now. Uh, But then thirdly, this kingdom is not just hidden. It's not just now and real, but the kingdom is beyond measure in value. Let me try to tease this out for you a little bit, and then Daniel's going to share about this is kind of the motivation to embrace costs, not just to continue to support and encourage Christchurch Rollsville. Folks, we want to plant another church, and we're going to be drawing some more of you to plant that church, trying to prepare you now by reminding you of the glory of this, of this kingdom. So the man finds the box. You can imagine, maybe Saul sees it out of his corner of his eye. He finds the box. He opens it up. And before him, maybe there was gold. Maybe there was silver. Maybe there were precious stones. But either way, he looked at it and he thought, there is value here of which I've never seen. There is beauty here and possibilities here of which I could never have imagined. Now, he may have been a fairly wealthy man. We don't know. What we do know is, is that he sold everything he had joyfully and willingly. So perhaps he had a situation like he had some fishing vessels. Maybe he had a farm. Maybe he had livestock. I don't know. But everything that he had combined was not even to be compared with the beauty and the value of this gospel. This gospel was beyond measure. You can just imagine if you ran your fingers through just piles of diamonds, you would know there was a value beyond tracing out, but you wouldn't even know how great it was. And so the man, we're told, in his joy, sells everything. He gets rid of everything. There is nothing in this life that can compare with being united by God, united with God in Christ. And so, now, of course, we can't take the kingdom of God and trace its value out with quantities and numbers and dollars and cents, but we can look at it in terms of its blessings and promises. For example, when I speak about the value of the kingdom, what do I mean? Well, number one, I would mean this truth, that God has forgiven you, the forgiveness of God. This divine forgiveness. You and I stand accountable. We stand responsible before God. And every one of us here is guilty before God. And yet God in mercy, in this gospel of the kingdom, God in mercy has given us a son who has borne our sin and he has borne the wrath that is related to that sin. And he has brought forgiveness to us. That we once were scared, we once were in fear, separated from God. God has now forgiven us in Christ. And even you who continue to sin as Christians, you have an advocate with the Father. It says clearly in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that he is just and faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please don't depreciate, because it sounds familiar, don't depreciate the value of what it means to be forgiven by God. I mean, some of you have deep stains on your soul. Some of us have done things that we are just still waiting for death to remove. And to know that God has forgiven you in Christ, all of your sins. It's not because, it's not because you've tried so hard, it's just because of the sufficient and the worth of Christ himself. I mean, it's profound when you think that God would forgive us. What is that worth to you? Is it a value beyond tracing out? Is it greater than the relationships you have? Is it greater than the pension accounts, the job? What is that worth to you? But not just divine forgiveness, and not just that God forgives us. How about that God 
has accepted us. In other words, there's full reconciliation with this gospel of the kingdom, right? In other words, you were an enemy of God, and now you're a friend. You once were estranged from God because of your sins, but now you've been drawn near. You've been drawn near because of his mercy and his grace. He's accepting you because of Christ. In fact, he's more than accepting you. It's not just like a relationship that's been restored. He's restored you to being an adopted son or daughter. What value is that to you? That in love he predestined you to be adopted as a sons and daughters. Is that of great value? Has it become so familiar to you? See, the person that doesn't feel like they've ever been estranged from God, this isn't that big a deal. Or the person who doesn't think they've sinned that much against God, forgiveness isn't that big a deal. But to those of you who know the depth of your sin, you know the depth of the enmity and the the ambivalence that you once had to God, and he has drawn you in, that is of great value. It's of immense value. Not just that, you're members of a new kingdom. I mean, you're members of a kingdom that is eternal, secure, and glorious. I mean, to be in this world, you live among nations, and these nations are raging, and they intend to do all manner of harm, and yet you are part of what Hebrews calls an unshakable kingdom, that you are protected by God. God will protect you that nothing will come into your life apart from God's sovereign hand. He'll protect you. What value is that to you? Of what worth is that? And not just that, but how about the promise, another jewel that you could pick out of this box is that you are going to be changed into being like Christ. What value is it to you that you've been filled and marked and sealed with the Spirit of God? That, that, That the Spirit of God is indwelling the saint, changing him from glory to glory that God superintends all the events in your life and he's going to organize and he's going to move in you through those circumstances to bring about his grand design in you, which is that you will be like Christ. I mean, what value is that? What, what can you place upon that as a value? And does that not cause all things to pale in comparison? That God is going to work even the hardships that will befall us this next year. God has an instrumental plan for them to bring you about towards a greater Christ-likeness. Or how about deliverance from death, the second death? You and I may go through a physical death. We'll never experience a second death. That life begins at death. That your life is beyond the value of what you are achieving today. The pursuits that you have, the jobs that you occupy, the goals that you have in this life, they may be fine, they may be good, but they are temporal and they will end briefly. But to know that there is something that transcends all that, that you have a value, a place, a purpose that goes beyond that, that will not end at the grave, that when we bring you your body up front and we speak of the glory of God at your funeral, we know there's much more, much greater, much better ahead than what it is right now. What value do you place on that? Your life isn't perhaps as good as you think it is or think it should be, but there's going to be a life to come that is glorious. Is that of great value to you? See, what we want to do in this church and Daniel pursuing the same goal is we want to hold up the gospel and say, this is a glorious treasure. This is a treasure beyond all treasure. What do you have right now that is distracting you and keeping you from enjoying the glory of this treasure? Many distractions. We were praying this morning, um, Rick and Daniel and I, over, over confessing our sins over those temporal and familiar things that want to move the treasure down the ladder of value in our life. What is distracting you from it? Because if the gospel is devalued, then the costs that you're called to embrace will seem 
unpayable. You won't be able to do it. I want us to marvel at the beauty and the glory of the gospel and its beautiful value so that then we can look at these costs as privileges and not as these things that will thwart us from being faithful. So Daniel, you want to come up and share? What a great <clears throat> privilege it is for me to look out at, at each of you and, and to see so many faces of people that have loved uh, my family and I so well. Um, just deeply thankful uh, for this church and all that they have done for me personally and, and in the way that they support our church. Um, I want to start by, by saying that, <clears throat> uh, echoing really what Tom has said, that if you, if you don't understand the value of the kingdom, what I am going to say will make no sense at all. And, and if we don't first uh, learn to appreciate what Tom has just described, if we can't see what he has just said to be true, th- then this will make no sense to us. It will be um, something that we cannot embrace but if this is the kingdom that we have inherited with all of its blessings, all of its promises, and this is the value of it, we, we have to think about what our response should be. If you look at the parable, we learn several things from the man in the parable. What is his response? What does he do? It says that he goes in his joy and sells all that he has to buy the field. The connections here are obvious. Jesus is saying that the The man sees so much worth and value in the treasure that he immediately moves to obtain it, no matter what the cost might be. He doesn't give a second thought to selling all of his earthly possessions because he obviously thinks that the value of the treasure far surpasses the value of everything that he currently has. See, this is the contrast that the parable is is setting up for us. It's raising this question. When when you see this kingdom, the kingdom of God, do you see it as so much more valuable than everything else that you would immediately give it all up in order to gain this kingdom? So let's assume for a minute that you you do see the value of the kingdom. You've heard all that, that Tom has said, and you agree, and you can consent to the idea that there is great value in these things that he has described, and they are more valuable even than anything else you have. It raises another question, I think, that, that is that really what is required? I mean, sure, I'm willing to give up everything, but is that what it really costs? Maybe you could get this field at a bargain price. Maybe you could do some shrewd negotiating and and, and buy the field and gain the treasure without really giving up much at all. It's really a popular version of of Christianity that's being given out in churches across the country, this this cheap discipleship. Churches that, that promise that if you come to Jesus, he just makes everything better in your life, that sickness goes away and financial prosperity comes that problems begin to fade away because Jesus makes everything better. But is that really what Jesus has promised us? If you read in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 uh, through 30, Jesus clearly describes what he's offering. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What is it that Jesus is calling us to? What is the cost? That we must hate our fathers and mothers? In other words, that our devotion to Christ would be so deep that it would make all other loves look like hate. That he would be far and away our first priority. He says that, that we must bear our cross and come after him. In other words, we embrace suffering and hardship. We willingly sacrifice for this common good of seeing his name made known. Why? Why would we do that? Because we know that there is nothing greater to give our lives to. Because in short, we've seen the value of this great kingdom. We have uncovered this treasure, and now we go in our joy and sell everything that we have in order to obtain it. But if we're honest for a minute, <clears throat> this is a really scary way to talk. Yeah, I mean, Jesus is, is radical in the way that he talks, and as much as we would love to domesticate him, as, as much as we would make, love to make him a little safer, we just can't. He doesn't allow it. It's what the people of Israel wanted to do with him as well. We read this in Luke chapter 14, but if we look in verse, or chapter 9, you see the same thing again. In Luke chapter 9, he has already told the people, and he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his self? See, these people in Israel, they wanted to follow Jesus. He had been healing diseases in a time when there was no doctor. He's making water into wine. He's feeding 5,000 people. He's doing miraculous things. There's this pattern that develops in the Gospels over and over again where these crowds begin to form, huge crowds following Jesus everywhere that he goes. And every time these crowds would begin to form, Jesus would turn and say something like this. It's as if he's, he's constantly throwing cold water on the flames that would begin to grow. He'd start talking about bearing a cross every day of your life. He'd start talking about hating your father and mother. Certainly not the way to build a huge following. So what is it that Jesus is doing? Jesus wasn't interested in drawing a crowd. He wanted to draw a collection of disciples. He wanted a group of people who understood the value of this kingdom, who would love and worship God with all their hearts, souls, minds, and strength to the point that they would gladly give up anything in order to gain it. He's looking for a group of people who will with great joy go and sell all that they have in order to buy this field. So another question that the parable raises is, do you value the kingdom this way? 
Do you consider the things of God, His glory, His kingdom to be of such surpassing worth that there is no price too high to pay for it? Is the kingdom of God worthy of all your worldly goods? Is it worth sacrificing all your earthly relationships? Is it worth giving up all your earthly comforts? Is it worth giving up even your very life? In thinking about how to apply this parable, it's very difficult. I think it could move us to have a big church yard sale next week where we all just collectively come and sell everything that we own to try to respond well to this parable. And there might be some things that you need to sell or give away. I won't take that away from you. But that's not really the point of the parable. The point is that this kingdom, this gospel that we have received is worth far more than anything else. And it should be a great joy for us to make this kingdom our first priority. And so we have to consider what is the nature of this kingdom and how can I be a part of pouring myself out for it? What does God want to see happen with this kingdom? And then how can I be a part of that? Well, God's intention for this kingdom is that it would spread. And he's clearly called us to join in that. We are the agents of advancement, that we are the salt and light. And if, and if I want to give my life for this treasure, it means that I begin to see every area of my life as an opportunity to advance this kingdom and bring glory to my king. So some examples to think about. Your, your neighbors, for instance. As citizens of this kingdom, as people who are willing to give everything for it, we begin to see our neighbors not as people that we have to try to get along with or that we constantly get frustrated with because they don't mow that patch of grass that they're supposed to or they never roll their trash cans in on time. Instead, we begin to see them as people that God has sovereignly placed us next to that we might be salt and light to them. Because we have inherited this kingdom that is of such great value that it would give us such great joy to see them partake of the same kingdom. And if you share this gospel with them, if you strive to see the kingdom advanced, it might make your life more difficult. It might make things awkward between you and your neighbor, but that's the point of the parable. Is this kingdom not worth embracing such a small cost? Or what about your co-workers? That as citizens of this kingdom, we no longer see them as people that we have to appease or try to get along with because it might mean the advancement of our careers. But instead, we see them as people that God has placed us with that we might share the gospel with them. And will that cost you something? there's a good chance that that will cost you something. But is this kingdom of not, uh, 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 not of such great value that you would gladly pay that small cost, even if it's a great cost? Or your money. <clears throat> we are all very sensitive about our money. Do you see the money that God has given you as something to be stewarded for his kingdom? 
Or, or is your money for you just a, a means to your own comfort, your own security, your own enjoyment of life? See, the great challenge for us in such an affluent country is, is going to be that we are, are going to always be uh, battling against not being too comfortable here. Our whole lives can begin to revolve around making ourselves at home, but, but Peter tells us that this isn't our home. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Yet Paul is saying we're aliens and strangers here. This isn't our home. We look awfully foolish if we are, are trying to make it our home. And yet we fall into it all the time. Like I said, I think the most difficult part of this parable is that there are no definite answers. I I wish it was a list of seven things that I could tell you to do, and then you would be abiding by the principle of this parable. But but there is no such list. It's just difficult, heart-searching work that we have to constantly engage in, where you ask yourself questions like, am I working to build up my own kingdom, my own comfort, or am I living for the kingdom of God? Are you looking at every relationship, every possession, every gift and talent as a means of advancing this kingdom? Or maybe more difficult, what are you holding back? What are you refusing to sell? What is it that you've attached so much hope to that you can't see yourself without it? I want to close by asking two specific questions about how to respond to this as a church. And the first is just how, how do we respond to this as a, as a corporate body, any church? You have to ask yourselves, as a church, are we more concerned about building up our church or are we more concerned with lifting up the name of Christ? You have to make sure that you continue to see all of your resources as kingdom property. For you to gladly give up for the advancement of this kingdom, we can't get caught up in making our time of exile more comfortable here. And then secondly, what does this look like for you specifically as a sending church? A church that is is investing in the kingdom by planting other churches. I think it's going to mean several things for you. I think first it's going to mean that you're going to have to continue to share your leadership, specifically your pastor. I hope that you have recognized that there has been a unique measure of grace poured out on Tom. An extra measure of wisdom and understanding of the church and ministry and preaching even that he needs to share with other people. And maybe no one could speak better to that than I can. But he has invested in me for over five years and now I I consider him a great means of grace in my life that has prepared me to do what I'm doing now. You've got to continue to share him. And allow him to pour himself into other people. As, as we've gone through this process, I've met with a lot of pastors. And it has increased my appreciation for Tom. We need many more young men to be poured into by ministers like Tom. And it will mean that you have to give him up at times. 
Secondly, I'd say you have to labor in prayer. And and I hesitate with that one. I don't want it to be just the the canned response. You have to do that in order to do any kind of missions work. Of course, you have to put prayer on the list. But I am becoming more and more convinced that, that, that our calling, especially if we're going to be involved in this mission of God to see his kingdom spread, is to labor diligently in prayer. Please continue to pray for us. God moves and responds to the earnest prayers of his people. Paul is constantly calling us to things like perseverance in prayer, labor in prayer, work diligently in prayer. It's something that we must give ourselves to. Third, I'd say you have to continue to give sacrificially. It takes a lot of money and resources to plant churches. And I am so grateful for the way that this church has supported us and really supported us sacrificially. There are a lot of programs and things that you could have done for yourselves, but instead you have sent us with support so that we could plant a new church and a new community. And last, uh, and I think maybe the most difficult, is that you will have to continue to say goodbye to your dear friends. Because if you are going to plant another church, there will be another load of people that have to sign up and go. And leave the warmth and comfort of this great church and go out into the cold. But is this kingdom not worth it? When you consider all that God has done for you, that he did not spare his own son, what a great joy it is to be counted worthy of these light and momentary afflictions. What a great joy for us as a planted church and for you as a planting church to display the worth and value of this kingdom by making these small sacrifices for it. I hope, I pray, that you can continue to find more and more joy in the idea that you have given up something for this kingdom. And I pray that it would fuel each of you, that it would motivate you to give up even more. To invest yourself fully in this kingdom. That you might see it advance. And that you might see others come to know the joy of this great kingdom.